Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of the Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. Oftentimes on the Think Biblically podcast, we'll look at a cultural issue, we'll look at a political issue, we'll look at some ethical issue and try to help you think biblically about it. But occasionally, we want to go back to the scriptures and just look at issues like discipleship and say, how do we think about discipleship in our contemporary moment? Well, we have a guest today who's written a book called The Revolutionary Disciple. And when I think of discipleship, I don't know anyone who's written better on this, but is practicing this than our guest today. His name is Jim Putnam. He's the senior pastor of Real Life Ministries in beautiful Post Falls, Idaho. And I've been to his church many times and can just testify to the ministry and discipleship that is taken there. So Jim, we really appreciate you joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. I, I just love what you guys do. Well, let's just jump right in. Before we get to some things in your book, can you share your personal journey to becoming a Christian? Well, Sean, your dad actually played a big part in that. Uh, I grew up in the church and had a distaste for it and walked away uh, an atheist, alcoholic. And uh, my dad challenged me with, the, uh, you know, that there were scientists who were theists, which I thought was ridiculous. And uh, that led me to investigate that issue and come to the conclusion, yeah, there was probably a God, but which one? And uh, so I started to study religion, but my dad sent me uh, your dad's book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Wow. And that played a part in me deciding that Christianity was the only provable, historically provable religion. So that led to the gospel being shared and accepted. And so it's been quite a journey. Jim, it's, I mean, from reading your book, too, it's also there's quite a story behind the, the founding of Real Life Church, too. So tell, tell our listeners a little bit about that journey to, for Real Life Church to, be, to get where it is today. Well, we started it 22 years ago, I believe, and I was had been a youth minister and was pretty, you know, disgruntled. I don't know if disgruntled, but disillusioned with the church that was pretty happy with what it was doing, wasn't reaching lost people, certainly wasn't ministering to kids very well. And I decided I was going to go be an adult pastor somewhere. And just a couple of families in northern Idaho that had been meeting together to pray called me and asked me if I would... Uh, consider coming and planting a church. And my first answer to that was no, but they asked me to pray about it. And God did some miraculous things along the way to show me that that is exactly where he wanted me to go. And and I can testify that if you heard the whole story about all the things that God did to get us here, and then as we, we got here, you would you would go, yeah, God can use about any idiot, you know, anybody who's dumb enough to do You know, it, 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 I'm not kidding you. If you heard all the stories of God showing up, it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. So, you know, we get to testify to the fact that, you know, we're crackpots and Jesus is the hero. Well, I, I love that. And I've heard some of these stories from you personally, and I just want to make sure our audience realizes how vibrant this church is. If they haven't been to Coeur d'Alene or Post Falls, that you are really practicing and raising up disciples. Now, I want to talk through some of the challenges you might face as a pastor today. But before we jump in, you've written a book called The Revolutionary Disciple. 
what is a disciple and what even is discipleship before we jump into what that can look like today? Well, that's the question that I think is so important. What is a disciple of Jesus and what is a mature disciple of Jesus? And so our, our church said, okay, we were called to make disciples, not converts. What is that? And is there is there a simple reproducible definition that embraces you know, all of the aspects of spiritual maturity? And is there a method that leads to that? And because uh, sometimes we have the right definition, but our methodology is not leading to the results we want. And is there a biblical uh, methodology and a biblical definition? So that led us to, uh, we, we say in the invitation is the definition. Jesus said in Matthew four nineteen, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And so a disciple is, is one who's following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, committed to the mission of Jesus. And when Jesus said, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, he, embedded in that is also an invitation uh, to come be with him. So it's in relationship that we learn to follow Jesus, where change happens in our life as he does his work in us and as he leads us to minister with him. And so what we've done is said, okay, this is what Jesus said it is. This is the way he did it. When he said, go and make disciples, he didn't mean go do it any way you want. In Matthew 28, he said, I have been with you. Go and do what you saw. Go and live out what you, what you had lived out in front of you. And Jesus's methodology, uh, his definitions and his methodology change people. And so we will say often, you, you can't divorce the teachings of Jesus from the methods of Jesus and get the results of Jesus. So what does it look like? to define things his way and live that out. And it, it, man, his method changes the world. It really does. Now, Jim, you use the term humble discipleship to describe a lot of what your emphasis is. Uh, why, why do you use that particular term? And what, what does humble discipleship look like? Well, you know, the Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God has a problem with pride. And, and there's a reason for that. Pride is what led us to decide we should be our own gods, reject the Lord's authority. Pride is what caused the, the devil himself to rebel against God in heaven. And pride actually uh, kills discipleship. In Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Um, and so that means he's the king. He says, go, therefore. Uh, and make disciples. Pride says, I don't give you authority, God. I'm the authority. Pride says, I won't go and make disciples. And, you know, Matthew 28 says, go and baptize people and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So on, if I won't go because I want God to make my life uh, comfortable for me, then discipleship doesn't happen. If I, if I go so that I can get what I want from God, kind of like a, a negotiation, kind of like um, um, I'll go as long as I get what I want. You bless my my life. Then I'm really going not because I'm humble before the Lord and I want to serve him and I want him to be king. I'm going to get, which is kind of like, you know, tithing so that I get more of what I want rather than tithing because of what God's already done and 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 bless me with and 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 save me from my sin and on the cross and and all of that. So when I look at if I'm going into the world, 
for the wrong reasons, because of pride, it kills discipleship. Because then what happens is, is I just create more sons of hell, as Jesus said about the Pharisees. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm proud and I'm reproducing pride. I'm, I'm actually, you know, like, you know, the, the disciples wanted uh, to be the first in the kingdom of heaven. And so if they were to go out with that attitude, it's like, hey, you know, uh, if you follow Jesus, you get to be first. And Jesus said, no, he was first must be last. So you're, you're, if you go out in pride, you're making the wrong kind of disciples. And if a person refuses to be taught all that Jesus commands and says, no, I want salvation, but I don't want to follow his commands and I don't want to be taught, then the discipleship process ends. So pride kills us going or pride can kill our motivation for going and pride keeps me from following and being taught and being under authority. Pride kills both sides of the equation. You talk a lot about pride in the book. I'm wondering if you could take this a little bit further and just give us some specifics and obviously not mentioning individuals or people. You're wise enough not to do that, but the kind of practical scenarios that you see as a pastor where pride manifests itself in the church and prevents real discipleship from taking place? Well, for a pastor, pride might look like, hey, um, my job, rather than getting in the dirt and ministering to people, is to teach people. I'm too important. My job is too important to actually get down in the muck and the dirt. Um, Pride might look like uh, in discipleship, I'm the guy with the answers and and you guys need to do what I tell you to do. I don't need to share with you my stuff. Um, I don't need you to speak into my life. I'm the one who hears from God and tells you the answers. Pride might look like um, I, I did all of these amazing things. Therefore, I deserve uh, to have a place in your life. And, you know, pride says it was my effort, my energy. I'm the hero of the story. I'm the one who's got my life together. So I'm not going to share that I have my struggles, which then what that does in a church is, is those who are elevated are those who have the right information and appear to have their lives in order, which then elevates people who appear to have things in order rather than, than the truth that we're all on a journey and, you know, we're, we're all we're all growing in Christ and we're all making mistakes and we're confessing our sins to one another and carrying each other's burdens. It becomes kind of a show. Pride says, I won't uh, be under authority of other elders, of other people in the church. I don't need accountability. I'm the one who gives accountability. And, you know, we've seen a lot of pastors and a lot of people fall. Yeah. Uh, and kind of have the God tells me what to do and I sit on high and everybody else should do what I, I say and I don't need to count that, that kind of isolation and, and uh, separation from God's people uh, leads to to darkness and the devil's playground and it just turns into a mess. Jim, let me follow up a little bit on on pr- the pride and humility aspects that you've been talking about. seems to me one of the uh, one of the ways in which pride manifests itself is that when when prideful people get into disagreement and conflict, it usually doesn't end well, uh, and those those end up turning out not being very pretty. Uh, you've learned a lot about how to handle disagreement and conflict. 
Um, and you've got, I think, a particularly compelling story at the beginning of your book about a pretty significant conflict uh, and how you handled it and what you learned from it. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, personally, uh, we, I wrote this book based on reflection in my life of, uh, uh, on this issue of pride and how it's impacted me. In, in other words, let me say it this way. I struggle with pride. And in the book, I talk about how that pride almost led to a separation between me and the guys that helped lead this church and what God taught me through that process. And I, over the years, I've become less and less proud. Uh, I mean, I, I'm growing, but man, I still every morning I wake up and, and I look in the mirror and there there's my flesh still there wrestling, you know, the Holy Spirit and, and my flesh still wrestling. And so I, in, in the in the book, I, I talk about how uh, the elders here disagreed with a plan that I had put together. And they asked me to do a couple of things internally before we reached outside the walls. And they also asked me to recognize some ways in which I wasn't listening to these guys. And so I went through this stage of, all right, well, maybe it's time for me to go. And I was challenged by another believer that said, hey, you know, they asked some questions. Are these guys, do you believe in the authority, the plurality of eldership? Yes. Do you, do you believe God speaks through the team? Yes. Are they all in agreement against you in, on this situation? Yes. And so as he was asking me these questions, it was pretty apparent that he was challenging the fact that I believe in these things at the intellectual level, but these guys were not asking me to sin. In fact, that was his next question. He said, Jim, are these guys asking you to sin? And I said, no. Do you believe in being under authority? Yes. And all he did was ask questions and it led me to this place where I was being a hypocrite. I was being, a, a, I don't know how I had gotten there. I had been blinded by exhaustion or frustration or, you know, the things that, that are possible for each of us. And I had to go, wow, okay, Lord, I don't like this. I don't necessarily agree. They're not asking me to sin. They're in agreement. You gave us a plurality of leaders, and I had to make a decision to humble myself and submit to their authority, and that was hard. And they turned out to be right. Hmm. Um, either that or God went, okay, they may be wrong, but it's not sin. <laughs> but the work that the Lord's had to do in me and the times where I know something to be true, but I'm off course and I don't even know that I'm there. You know, this is what discipleship enables you to do. You don't go through this relational discipleship process so that you can stand on your own. And you don't need people. No humility says in relationship, I need to be shaped. And a mature person knows that in relationship, they can actually fulfill the mission of Christ. They can actually have God speak to them through those relationships. You need relationship to become mature. And it's only when you have relationship that you are mature. Jim, you talk about and just give just a great example as a pastor of submission to leadership, yet 
I'm sure you know, and have fallen even hinted at it, the amount of just examples of unfaithfulness and abuse that has taken place within the church. Sometimes people using that in, in powerful ways that lead to harm to others. So how do you balance that sense of biblical submission and humility with a recognition that there has been people in authority in the church that have used it, unfortunately, in abusive ways? Yeah, I I think you just have to come to the place where you recognize that you are susceptible. Like in hearing um, some of the podcasts that are out there and, and some of the stories, for me, I can look at my life and go, man, I could have been that guy. And there were times where I was being that guy, but I was blessed to have people in my life that pointed it out. Uh, whether it was my father or the elders or close friends. And again, I, I know this about myself. Left to myself, I can do things that, um, I, and, and it's possible no, no, no matter how many years I've been a Christian, to just go, you know what? This is possible for me, so I'm going to live this kind of lifestyle out, fighting for relationship, humbling myself before the Lord, humbling myself before others is a key to staying in the will of God and the blessing that that brings. Now, again, that means you have to deal with conflict. And conflict comes from the way people hear things, their perspectives. But just to come to the place where you believe that you have holes in your game. It's a, I wrote a book called Church is a Team Sport. It was never supposed to be one guy up on stage. He's the entertainer. He's got all the answers and the people come. God has always worked in a team where different gifts and abilities fill in the holes for others. And recognizing you need those people in your life, God sends those people to you to keep you from your flesh, from the enemy, Um is in fighting for those relationships, being somebody before you do something is so key. Jim, let me think about this application of humility a little bit further. Um, we've talked a, a bit about what humility looks like in the church, among church leaders, but what does humility look like in a family? What, what does help, help us spell that out a little bit further? That's been so difficult for me over the years. I mean, I'll be honest with you. We write about the five spheres in that book and what does humility look like in each sphere? In the in your abiding sphere, humility before the Lord, in your church sphere, in your home sphere, in your work sphere, and even how doing life in relationship with God and others helps you in the spiritual realm sphere. That The book of Ephesians lays that all out. My home sphere is my wife is so different than me her way of thinking, her way of doing things. And, you know, there's been times where we are competing against each other for who's right instead of embracing that I have part of the picture, but God meant for her to fill in the holes in raising our children and even how I function at church. She is a partner with me. I may be the leader, the head of the household, but a good leader facilitates using the gifts and abilities of those in the group to bring them to the forefront. It's, and, I, and again, I, I, I understood that in sports. 
I've understood that in teams, but that has been a challenge for me in my marriage over the years. And and to see her as somebody who has something important to say in every sphere, not just in parenting, but even in, in my work and world and and uh, being willing to, to admit that I don't have the answer. She has something to add. I need to facilitate that, invite that in rather than be reluctant. And uh, that's been a huge key. And, you know, it's why I'm still married, uh, because of the wisdom that God's word and God's people brought into my life in those areas. Left to myself, I'd have made a mess out of that, too. I think I think Sean and I would both attest that, you know, we're all married you know, based on the grace of God and the fact that our wives haven't thrown us out yet. Amen. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me take this just one step further, if I might, um, because I think one of the areas where we need humility, maybe more than any others in our churches, is how we approach political differences mm-hmm. among us. So how, how does that work out at Real Life Church? Well, this has been—I live in North Idaho, and it's as red as you can get. <laughs> And my, you know, we're not a liberal church. We're, we are conservative. Um, but our biggest problem has not been with liberals because liberals, you know, when we preach about abortion, uh, complementarianism, uh, homosexuality, the liberals aren't sticking around anyway. But it's been the people that are moving to Idaho, you know, from around the country, angry at where they came from, and people from here that are so independent in their thinking. And, you know, a common, you know, bumper of a car will say, my boss is a Jewish carpenter, but right next to it, it'll say, if you want my guns, you're going to have to pry it out of my cold, dead fingers. (laughs) (laughs) And so what does it look like to, you know, to, to bring Romans 13 into your your life you know uh, it, you can't just ignore it you know and so there's this tension between acts four you know where peter's told he can't preach about the gospel he says i, I can't help but preach but romans 13 where i obey my leaders including the king and walking through this tension of what does it look like to be kingdom of heaven first uh, you know, I, I have people that can quote the, the Constitution amendments, but don't know one thing about Romans 13. Wow. Yikes. And you find out their Bible, their American version of the Bible, they look at the Bible through the eyes of the Constitution rather than the Constitution through the eyes of the Bible. And so what does it look like to go, OK, there is a time and place to fight. I'm not a, a pacifist, but we have to fight the right fights the right way. You know, being kind, being ready with an answer for the hope that we have, you know, to be wise. And what is wisdom? It's peaceable. It's humble, James says. We have to be wise. We don't fight like the devil for the things of God. There is a time to fight, but the way we fight is important. And, and, and you know, the biggest thing that I've got is I got people leaving our church because we've said um, the mask mandate or the vaccine mandate is they're not asking us to sin. And you can have a different opinion on that. It's non-salvation issue. The Bible says in Romans 14, there are some things that you have to obey your conscience on, but keep it between you and God. You know, who are you to judge another man's brother? To keep the things that are essential, essential, and give freedom in the non-essentials, and be wise enough 
to keep your mouth shut so that we don't divide the church on non-salvation issues. But when there is, like if they said I had to preach that homosexuality wasn't sin or that there are more than two genders or those things, there's a place where I'm like, if you're saying I have to preach that to keep our church building, here's the keys. We'll just go house to house. We're ready to do that. We make discipleship and relationship. We're ready to do that. I, I tell people to vote. You need to vote. But but we're kingdom of heaven first, not national Americans first. And again, I want to be careful because I think they're right things to teach and believe. But you cannot ignore scripture. Like it's like, you know, Paul and had to write Romans and and. You know, First Corinthians and Peter had to. I mean, these guys are underneath Rome, who were wicked. You know, how do we respond as Christ followers, advancing the kingdom of heaven, eternal things, King Jesus first, and our national uh, identity down the line? Jim, I have a final question for you. It's it's so easy for us to get discouraged today, just looking at how divisive our culture is, maybe looking at certain things going on economically, culturally, uh, even how divided the church is. And you look at numbers that, you know, the numbers of people going to church seems to be shrinking. But I want to know, what gives you hope today as a pastor in terms of seeing discipleship really take place? Well, I would say this. As things got rough, I think people are coming to know Christ. Prosperity has never been very good for for believers. Hmm. We tend to worship the created things rather than the creator. And the Jews did that, too. Things would get good. They started getting complacent, started, you know, worshiping their work, their finances, all that stuff. And so it's when people are brought to their knees, shaken off their feet, that they actually start looking up. If God's desire is to reach people, he's willing to do whatever it takes. He's brought his son down here to suffer. He's willing to bring all this down around our ears so that we'll actually look up. And we get upset about what we don't see God doing or what we wish he would do, you know, at the government level and all those things. And we're not taking advantage of the doors that God is making open to us around us. God is always working. He, what is he doing? Well, he's not trying to save a country. He's trying to save mankind for a new heaven and a new earth. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't save the, do what we can to, to create an environment that's safe on planet earth as we can. But God's trying to save people for eternity and bringing them to their knees means that they're open to new things. So should we, I had to pray this for my son when he was a drug addict, Lord, do whatever you have to do to bring him to his knees. Hmm. If we're like, hey, God, do what you have to do in America to bring people to their knees so that we can be there to show them the hope of eternity and what Jesus can do in their life, then do it. And he's always doing those kinds of things. So while he may not be helping us win an election, he is reaching lost people. And we need to open up our eyes to what he is doing and he's always doing and join him in what he's doing instead of be angry at him for what he's not and taking matters into our own hands. Jim, I love your book that you co-wrote with Chad Harrington called The Revolutionary Disciple. And the subtitle really captures it, Walking Humbly with Jesus in Every Area of Life. This is a book not just for pastors or professors or leaders. It's really for everybody. 
and you model it from the opening story ways that I think show just some some significant humility, your own failures, your own struggles, and just kind of invite people along with you to be a discipler and a follower of Jesus. So we really appreciate you carving out the time for joining us, and I hope our our viewers, if you want to get challenged, this is not a light read. This is one that's going to challenge you, as it did me, my own pride, my own shortcomings, and ask, am I walking humbly with Jesus? If so, pick up a copy of The Revolutionary Disciple by our guest today, Jim Putnam. Pastor Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's always good to talk to you guys. Thank you. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and fully online, including the Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider giving us a rating on your podcast app. Every review helps. And please consider sharing it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.